Hello, everyone. I'm Chetan Bhatt, Director of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE, and I'd like to warmly welcome you to this public event hosted by the Centre on the stateless citizen, irregular migration and cosmopolitan citizenship. And I'd very much like to thank you for joining us this evening. The theme of this evening is, of course, a very important one for those of us who are concerned with human rights, but also... Uh, with the forms of political mobilization and contestation of those who are considered to be irregular, undocumented, so-called illegal migrants. And uh, those mobilizations have included rebellions, uh, rebellions in detention camps, hunger strikes, sit-ins, occupations, and a variety of other forms of demonstrations, as well as riots and clashes with the forces of law enforcement. And this event explores this politicization of irregular migrants and links this to a number of theoretical themes, including the rise of the stateless citizen and the uh, stateless citizen as a key form of uh, what our speakers will uh, describe as cosmopolitan citizenship. I'm therefore very delighted to be able to introduce you to Professor Andreas Kalivas. He's a professor of politics at the New School for Social Research and he's also chief co-editor of the journal Constellations. He's the author of Democracy and the Politics of the Extraordinary, a book on Weber, uh, Schmidt, and Arendt, and the co-author of Liberal Beginnings, Making a Democracy for the Moderns, and both books were published by Cambridge University Press in 2008. And he's currently working on two book projects, one on the intersecting trajectories of dictatorship and tyranny in Western political theory, and uh, another project on the constituent power and radical democratic politics. And he's currently a visiting research professor at the University of Barcelona in Spain. Now, acting as respondent this evening is our very own Dr. Aisha Chubukchu. She's a lecturer in the Center for the Study of Human Rights. And in conjunction with a history and critique of international law, her research and her teaching interests have included the fields of social and political theory, human rights, cosmopolitanism, secularism, post-colonial studies, and transnational social movements. And in her research, Dr. Chubukchu examines a variety of areas related to legality, justice, and legitimacy, uh, particularly the entanglement of international law uh, and human rights ideals with the ethics and politics of violence. Professor Kalivas will speak first, and Dr. Chubukchu will respond and uh, then hopefully Dr. Kalavas will respond to Dr. Chibukchu, and then there'll be time uh, for questions from the audience. Now, this event will finish at 8 o'clock. It has to finish at 8, otherwise uh, the stewards will come and tickle me with feather dusters, and uh, that won't be a pleasant sight. Uh, but this, uh, gladly, the event will be followed with a reception. I won't tell you where the reception is in case you decide to sneak off early for an early glass of wine, but I'll tell you at the end of this, this event. Now, I need to let you know that the event, including the question and answer period, are being audio recorded. And uh, if the technology works, we'll have a podcast of the lecture, including the Q&A session online within a few days. May I also ask you to please turn your mobile phones to silent. And if you'd like to comment on this event using Twitter, the suggested hashtag for this event, which is also up on the screen behind the speakers, is LSE Calivas. 
as I said, following the presentation, there'll be ample time for questions and discussion. So I ask you to extend your welcome to Professor Andreas Kalevas. Um, thank you so much for the, for the invitation. And um, I want to apologize, um, uh, in a sense, to you, but mainly to Aisha, because um, she was not provided with a paper. There is no paper. This will be just uh, some reflections of an ongoing project uh, that I have been engaged in the last few years. What I will present is the general structure of, uh, of the argument uh, without much of the empirical uh, evidence. Um, my main concern um, is to understand um, uh, what I consider to be uh, a relatively new phenomenon uh, of the last um, uh, 30 years that has, been, uh, uh, that has become increasingly salient uh, due to the uh, various global uh, spatial transformations of the last two decades uh, that followed the fall of Soviet communism, the globalization of capital, and the various uh, imperial uh, attempts uh, to develop uh, a new world. This new phenomenon is uh, what um, uh, one can understand as the politicization of uh, irregular migrants, the political mobilization, the um, uh, transformation of uh, uh, irregular migrants uh, into political actors. I consider this uh, to be a very important uh, phenomenon in the making, uh, both at the theoretical and conceptual, but also at the uh, empirical uh, political dimension. This kind of uh, civic mobilization of, of new gr uh, groups uh, that uh, usually are defined as undocumented uh, or illegal or unauthorized uh, brings into the fore uh, questions about citizenship, uh, sovereignty, but most importantly uh, about uh, uh, democracy. So the, the question uh, here is um, to find uh, a language, uh, a meaningful language, uh, that will be able to describe uh, these activities uh, by redeeming uh, their political uh, content. Uh, how can we make sense uh, of uh, irregular migrants' political action and uh, uh, of their civic uh, engagement? What are the implications on inherited uh, uh, concepts and our normative uh, uh, understandings? Uh, the question is um, uh, complicated if we try to understand it on the one hand from the point of view of uh, legal categories. Uh, we know that um, from uh, international law, from, uh, let's say, the uh, Declaration of uh, Human Rights, but also from the two conventions of 1954 and 1961 on uh, statelessness, uh, irregular migrants are not uh, provided with political rights. They are provided with other human rights, but not with political rights. Uh, when we look at uh, domestic laws of uh, uh, states, again, uh, they are deprived of political rights. So from a legal point of view, uh, irregular migrants, and I will talk a little bit more about the category of the irregular migrants, uh, are not uh, supposed to be political agents. But uh, nonetheless, uh, they act politically. So uh, from a domestic and international law, uh, their politicization does not make sense. It cannot be categorized, theorized. Now, uh, from the point of view of uh, uh, actual politics, uh, again, uh, they are not considered to be members, uh, citizens, uh, within the bounded communities uh, they engage uh, in political activities. So my, my work uh, tries to elucidate this phenomenon and to develop a preliminary and tentative theoretical framework. Uh, the, the, the first part uh, of this project uh, deals with empirical facts. So we know that um, uh, at least um, in the last uh, two decades, uh, there have been uh, several and there are ongoing several revolts uh, in detention centers, 
for uh, uh, irregular migrants. So we have Australia, uh, Italy, uh, Greece uh, and many other places. Uh, we have also massive demonstrations. Uh, the most uh, well-known is uh, in the United States in 2006, but also in England in 2007. We have strikes uh, when uh, they claim uh, better wages uh, and access to um, uh, uh, services. Uh, we have uh, riots and clashes uh, with uh, uh, domestic law enforcement. We have hunger strikes. Uh, there are also um, many uh, increasingly uh, associations and organizations formed by irregular migrants also, although they don't have the right to associate. We have occupations like the Saint-Papier in, in um, uh, France. We have written manifestos. So there is um, a whole range of political activities uh, that uh, speak about a new collective uh, political subject uh, coming into being that uh, has ne neither found its place uh, in the law uh, nor uh, in uh, domestic state-oriented uh, politics. So how can we uh, make sense of uh, the fact that um, uh, unwelcomed, unauthorized foreigners that have crossed uh, into communities in uh, political societies uh, illegally uh, try to uh, activate their political um, uh, dimension of their existence, uh, engaging in various public uh, activities and forming new political spaces, uh, although they are considered to be clandestine uh, and uh, illegal. So these are the, the questions I try to address uh, uh, based on uh, these new forms of political uh, mobilization, uh, the politicization uh, of uh, the, the supposedly non-political. And I propose the category of the stateless citizen to describe and uh, uh, interpret and elucidate uh, these uh, subjects uh, of these uh, illegal and sometimes even extra-legal activities. Uh, why uh, the term uh, stateless citizen? And I will come back uh, to this uh, toward the end of my presentation. Uh, obviously, uh, there are many categories uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, groups that uh, can be included in the, uh, in the concept of the irregular uh, migrant uh, that uh, uh, intersects uh, with the notion uh, of statelessness. Let's uh, make it clear that the idea of, of, the, of the stateless person is a legal category. Um, created uh, by international legal uh, documents. But there are two kinds of, of stateless um, uh, persons uh, recognized uh, by the two conventions. The one is um, uh, de jure statelessness and the other is uh, de facto statelessness. And what is happening uh, in the last 20 years is that we have the actual uh, creation uh, of a broader category where the, ca the concepts uh, of the economic migrant, the illegal migrant and the stateless persons are conflated. And this is uh, uh, due mainly uh, to uh, forms of uh, de facto statelessness. Uh, de facto statelessness is understood uh, as um, uh, an inability uh, for uh, a person to rely uh, on um, uh, a state for protection, for recognition. And this uh, might uh, be uh, due to uh, causes uh, to factors of cost, uh, to fears of persecution, what we might call refugees, uh, to circumstances of civil war, but also to voluntary renunciation in order to, affect, to, to avoid uh, deportation uh, if they are arrested. 
And also because uh, in most cases uh, the papers, uh, the documents of uh, uh, illegal migrants uh, are uh, taken away by their smugglers uh, in order to exercise pressures uh, uh, over them. So uh, de facto statelessness uh, describes an expanding group of illegal migrants who are unable or unwilling to establish their nationality or whose nationality is either disputed or unaffected. And uh, uh, although statistics are very obscure and difficult with uh, this particular category, uh, today there are uh, approximately 10 to 15 million uh, illegal migrants, uh, stateless irregular migrants uh, in the European continent. It's a very mobile population. It's very difficult uh, really to uh, track it down. So my main um, um, uh, emphasis on the irregularity uh, of, uh, of the uh, illegal, what's called the illegal uh, migrant, uh, has to do with um, uh, a very ambivalent uh, um, situation that uh, uh, the migrant entertains uh, in relation to the law. Um, the migrants are both, uh, in a sense, uh, within the law, since uh, the category of statelessness uh, is a legal category, but on the other hand, uh, when it comes uh, to political uh, rights, uh, they are definitely outside the law. They are not considered to be subjects uh, of political rights. In other words, they are not legally considered to be political actors. Um, the reason uh, also uh, that I will try to expand uh, in this presentation is the notion of citizenship. And uh, there um, I would uh, like, uh, I, I, I hope to make uh, a contribution in debates about uh, cosmopolitan citizenship, but uh, from a, a different perspective that uh, it is usually assumed. So this is the, the, the first part uh, that tries to lay down these conceptual and political problems. The second uh, engages uh, with uh, the work of uh, Hannah Arendt and Georg uh, Agamben on the question of uh, statelessness, uh, precisely because uh, they have... Uh, provided the most comprehensive framework to understand these acts of statelessness. Now, I will not dwell too much, but I want just to comparatively lay down their main arguments, because it is my view that their influence, both of Hannah Arendt's theory of statelessness and Agaben's notion of the uh, homo psyker have been detrimental and um, uh, uh, depoliticized in relation to uh, what has happened uh, or what is happening uh, with uh, the, the politicization of the regular migrants. So for Arendt, uh, what is important to, to remember is that um, uh, the stateless person uh, that emerges in the beginning of the 20th century as the result uh, of um, uh, international uh, treaties on minorities uh, inhabits uh, a space of exception. They habit a space of exception because uh, they don't uh, have any more any uh, legal uh, protection. They are not, uh, they are not understood uh, as uh, legal uh, personas. And uh, for this reason, she conflates the term of statelessness with the concept of rightlessness. To be uh, stateless, uh, that is to be expelled uh, from one's country and uh, to lack uh, or to be deprived of citizenship is the same for Hannah Arendt uh, to uh, have lost uh, all legal status. In this case, uh, uh, she, may, she argues, they live uh, outside the pale of law. Uh, they live in a permanent state of exception. This is the term uh, she's using, uh, outside legality altogether. And for this reason, she uses uh, the, the terms uh, in order to describe them uh, as uh, being superfluous 
and uh, uh, expressing uh, a naked form of life. The consequence, according to her, of this statelessness as rightlessness uh, is that um, they, they, they are becoming, uh, in her own terms, uh, they fall back in the condition of the state of nature and, uh, as she says, uh, they are like savages in Africa. Now, uh, suspending uh, the, the racial uh, or the racist elements uh, of uh, her analysis on this matter, one can already note here uh, a very uh, important uh, uh, theoretical contribution that will uh, later on be appropriated or repeated in postcolonial studies. The argument that she develops is that uh, statelessness introduces the outside, the colonial outside, into the uh, center. Uh, in fact, she argues uh, that the origins of totalitarianism can be traced uh, in the way that uh, uh, police and uh, security apparatuses deployed uh, mechanisms of repression to deal uh, with the stateless persons, that they were the same that they had been experimenting and applying uh, in their uh, uh, colonial peripheries. And uh, she describes this uh, uh, form of uh, 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 what I would call postcolonial forms of ruling over the, the stateless people as um, the paradigm of the internment camps. In other words, she says, and I quote, the only home that the stateless person has are the detention camps. So uh, homeless, uh, homelessness uh, uh, for uh, Hannah Arendt that characterizes the plight uh, of, uh, of statelessness is, in fact, a permanent state of exception, institutionally and politically organized as a camp. Um, now, uh, in this uh, conception that I think uh, uh, informs uh, most of uh, Agamben's work uh, on, on Homo Sacer, uh, the uh, underlying uh, assumption is that uh, they are characterized, the stateless people, by loss of speech, a loss of all human relationships, these are her own terms, and uh, a loss of the most essential characteristic of the human. They are, in other words, dehumanized. For this reason, they are considered also uh, to be savages, according to Arendt. They are, um, uh, in, a, in a sense, uh, unqualified life, uh, losing uh, the very qualities uh, which makes uh, human social life and political life possible. Now, in, uh, in, uh, in Agamben's um, uh, version of the Homo Sacer, and uh, let me remind you that uh, Homo Sacer is defined as the life uh, of someone who might be killed and yet not sacrificed. Uh, that means uh, that uh, one's life um, uh, is completely uh, worthless without any value. It's not even worth uh, to be, given, to be uh, given as a gift uh, to the gods. This is the Homo Sacer, someone who might be killed with impunity uh, and yet not uh, uh, sacrificed. And the main argument that uh, Agabens develop is precisely similar in structure and in content uh, about uh, that, um, uh, the one that Arendt also developed. They also inhabit a permanent state of exception and they become uh, the subject, the victims uh, of uh, the uh, sovereign power. In other words, it's the politicization of sheer life. It's exactly uh, the same logic uh, with, uh, with Hannah Arendt. It's interesting here to note the way they understand the politicization uh, of sheer life. Politicization of sheer life means that uh, one becomes a pure object, uh, vulnerable, 
του sovereign state power. This is what for Agaben is also named the bare life of the sheer life. In a sense, Agaben radicalizes Arendt by adding Schmidt and Foucault in his theoretical framework. And he ends his analysis of the, of the homo sacer with a very provocational claim that is Arendian in its core. The, 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 the modern, the, the camp, is the paradigm of the modern. In other words, the camp is everywhere and everyone is a homo sacer. But he takes as a paradigmatic case the refugees. It's not by, by chance that critical refugee studies rely a lot on uh, Agaben's um, uh, writings in order to develop their own analysis about the depolitization and the victimization uh, of the uh, uh, irregular uh, stateless uh, persons. Now, the consequence, the political implications of this uh, uh, approach is that it leads uh, to victimization, uh, powerlessness, lack of agency. Uh, the, the stateless person becomes uh, a subject of total uh, domination and uh, uh, pure passivity. In other words, uh, the idea of the stateless person of the homo sacer is a category of total, absolute negativity. Uh, there are also problems associated with uh, the, uh, one, how one understands uh, uh, international law in relation to, this, uh, to both of these approaches, but uh, I will keep that um, uh, for the conclusion. So the uh, empirical um, uh, phenomena that uh, we are witnessing, that is the politicization of uh, statelessness, uh, speaks against uh, these um, uh, two ambitious uh, theoretical frameworks. So what are the mistakes, the theoretical mistakes, uh, that may account uh, for the inability to explain or to interpret uh, the, 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 the empirical phenomena that is the politicization of, the, of, the, of statelessness? I think the one um, has to do with uh, equating uh, uh, political community with uh, the nation state. Uh, this is uh, the mistake of Hannah Arendt. Uh, in uh, her chapter on uh, statelessness, uh, she reduces any form of political community to the modern nation state. So if one uh, uh, is stateless, that is uh, deprived uh, of a nation state, one is deprived of a political community. The second problem that uh, characterizes also uh, Agaben is the equation of political right with political action. In other words, uh, uh, the idea of uh, illegally Uh, constructed political right for both of them uh, accounts uh, for the possibility uh, of political action. The third uh, flaw is that uh, they are equating uh, both uh, Arendt and uh, Agaben legal persona with the conditions of possibility of politics. They cannot think of politics outside the law. In other words, they cannot think of politics either as illegal or either as, as extra-legal. And the final flaw Of, of, of those approaches, or uh, let's say um, the um, lack of its presence, uh, is that uh, uh, they equate political space uh, with uh, territoriality. They cannot think of deterritorialized uh, political spaces. Overall, uh, the underlying uh, problem uh, that uh, I take it to be a methodological one uh, is their positivism, their legal positivism. They are deeply, both of them, uh, and this is paradoxical given uh, other aspects of their work, uh, both Hobbesian and Kelsenian in their understandings, in that they reduce the political to the legal. 
So one, if one uh, is uh, deprived uh, of uh, legal rights, one is deprived uh, of uh, the possibility of political action. So it's the problem that uh, all approaches to legal positivism uh, come with. Um, one could uh, really deconstruct uh, the work of uh, the early work of Hannah Arendt and of George Agamben precisely by pointing out, uh, exposing uh, this kind of uh, hidden uh, legal positivism that uh, informs their work. Uh, fortunately, Hannah Arendt uh, in her later work moved away from this legal positivism and I will come back to it uh, uh, in the next part uh, of uh, uh, the paper. Um, so, what happens now, uh, once we break away from this um, uh, negative uh, uh, conceptualization and, uh, uh, in a sense, simplistic conceptualization uh, of statelessness uh, as either being uh, non-political or as being uh, political um, in the negative sense um, uh, in Agaben's work, that is, uh, uh, the subject of uh, biopolitical uh, sovereign power. And uh, uh, a way to, to try to break away from this uh, uh, is to do it um, uh, uh, either or both uh, uh, analytically and uh, historically. So I will try to do it both. The historical argument uh, will take me back uh, to archaic Greece. The, the analytical argument um, will um, situate my argument in relation to recent discussions about cosmopolitanism. So the two fundamental questions is uh, to understand the notion of the stateless citizen by reconceptualizing the idea of citizenship beyond its abstract, formal, and legal definitions that have become dominant uh, through the modern uh, state nation, and on the other hand, to break away from uh, the territorial understanding of the political space. So, uh, for the question of citizenship, why to understand uh, the uh, political mobilization of uh, migrants uh, as uh, an expression of citizenship, given the fact uh, that uh, they are deprived of citizenship? They don't have citizenship. So, there would be a kind of contradiction. Uh, the way to do that uh, is to try to recover the deeply political meaning of citizenship beyond uh, its uh, juridical construction. And uh, a, a way to do it is to go at the origins of the birth of the concept of citizenship that um, uh, are traced in uh, the beginning of the 6th century BC uh, in the uh, famous legislation uh, of uh, Solon. So I'm going to read you a quotation uh, by Aristotle from uh, uh, Politics. Uh, this is uh, one of the most important uh, legislations by Solon, but also one uh, of uh, the most uh, neglected and ignored. Uh, usually Solon is well known for uh, the debt cancellation, rather than uh, from his famous law against political passivity and, and neutrality. This is how uh, philologists and uh, uh, historians have described it. So I'm quoting from Aristotle. As Solon saw the city was often in condition of civic strife, Athens, while some of the citizens, through laziness, were content to let things slide, he laid down a law to deal with them, enacting that whoever, when civic strife prevailed, did, did not join forces with either party, was to be disenfranchised and not to be a member of the city. So this uh, is a law. Uh, the law against uh, uh, neutrality and political passivity. I'm not interested in the legal formulation of this law. I'm interested in the spirit of this law that reveals that that is considered also to be the first uh, legal uh, instantiation of citizenship in uh, Western 
political history. So what is the spirit of the law? Someone becomes or is a citizen when someone takes an agonistic conflictual stance during a moment of stasis within a political community. So the definition is not predicated on who is a citizen, but what a citizen does. It's a performative and uh, uh, understanding of citizenship that uh, emphasizes the element of concrete enactment. So, in the Solonian case, uh, a citizen is someone who takes sides, who decides to enter the public space in order to stage a conflict, to participate, to participate publicly in a dispute, um, to confrontationally uh, address issues of the public good or what we may call generalizable issues. So according to this uh, tradition of citizenship, um, you are not a citizen only when the law authorizes you to. So you are not a citizen to use here the uh, Althusserian uh, idea that uh, when law interpellates you as a citizen, but you become a citizen outside juridical categories and legal constructions according to a specific set of activities that one uh, initiates. And uh, the main element uh, in this definition is that the content of these uh, concrete political activities have to be confrontational, agonistic. Or to put it in Schmittian terms, a citizen is someone who not only decides who is the friend and the enemy, but plays out this, dis this distinction in the public space. So this agonistic element, in a sense, uh, in the Solonian uh, law, um, uh, anticipates... Uh, both the idea of the citizen in, in uh, Hannah Arendt's later work from the human condition on uh, and also the, the Schmittian uh, understanding of the political as a distinction between a friend and enemy. So how we, one can reconstruct uh, the normative content uh, of this uh, conception of uh, citizenship. The idea is that by taking sides in a public conflict, one, on the one hand, creates new informal public spaces, where through deed and speech, one becomes a political actor. With the Schmittian, from the Schmittian tradition, one becomes a citizen when one enacts the distinction between a friend and enemy. So what happens with the irregular migrants, the content of their political involvement generates or um, revives the Solonian concept of citizenship. On the one hand, they take a position confrontationally uh, in a public space. There is a, a new distinction between the friend and enemy that bypasses the, the uh, distinction between the inside and the outside. So the enemy is not only someone who is located outside, it might be the imminent other, the one who is already inside, who um, um, postulates and enacts uh, as an enemy those who uh, are for uh, proposed exclusionary practices about uh, bounded, uh, for the reproduction of bounded communities. Uh, on the other hand, the, we have the creation of new informal public spaces in the agonistic tradition uh, developed uh, by Arendt. So, 
Uh, one uh, uh, approach to the problem of citizenship to make sense uh, of this uh, valorization of uh, uh, migrant uh, illegal action is to break uh, from legal formalism and to understand the deeply political meaning of what they do. They participate already, always, by their political action in the political community that uh, supposedly does not authorize them to do so and they are not recognized as uh, uh, citizens. In this uh, um, uh, particular uh, case of uh, citizenship can also uh, be expanded um, uh, with a dialogue uh, with the work of uh, Rancière, Jacques Rancière. We can see the uh, irregular migrants who become political as the part that has no part, that is not counted as a part, but becomes counted by its own uh, self-authorized action. So uh, there are many different theoretical ways that can be traced uh, not only to contemporary uh, literature about uh, political action and citizenship, but all the way back uh, to the original founding moment of citizenship as, as such uh, before its uh, appropriation uh, by status categories uh, and by the liberal uh, juridical philosophy. So the, 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 the element of citizenship has precisely to do uh, with uh, uh, this Olonian tradition. And um, uh, the elements, uh, again I repeat, uh, are the formation, the, the creation, uh, the staging of informal public spaces and uh, the distinction between a uh, uh, friend and enemy. The second part has to do with the question of why these forms uh, of political uh, uh, activity might be considered cosmopolitan. So very Quickly, uh, let me um, uh, reflect on uh, some pos possible attributes uh, that make uh, uh, this kind of uh, politization of the <coughs> irregular migrant deeply cosmopolitan. The first is uh, that um, irregular migrants who act politically uh, politicize uh, the um, um, transgression of borders. Border crossing becomes a political act. Now, what I'm saying is not that any border crossing, uh, illegal border crossing, is political, but that is uh, open to politization once the irregular migrants uh, develop an understanding uh, of the border as a form of political exclusion. And uh, the act of uh, border crossing is deeply uh, cosmopolitan, again, from uh, the very beginnings of cosmopolitanism, both in ancient Greece but also uh, in um, uh, modern Europe uh, through the work, uh, let's say, of uh, Kant. Uh, remember that Kant defines cosmopolitanism precisely around borders. Uh, the, uh, the, the famous right of hospitality relates to a form of border crossing, uh, moderate as might, might be, but he understood that this act by itself uh, has a cosmopolitan dimension. The second element uh, is that um, irregular migration uh, definitely relates uh, empirically and socially uh, with uh, the global division of labor. In other words, uh, we cannot understand uh, uh, today uh, irregular migration if uh, we don't uh, locate it uh, within uh, uh, what uh, John Stuart Mill and uh, uh, Karl Marx called the cosmopolitanism of capital. So the cosmopolitanism of capital is reproducing uh, the cosmopolitanism uh, of labor. The third element is that um, uh, by um, uh, entering uh, 
uh, illegally, without authorization, into a bounded community, they directly cha challenge uh, state sovereignty. In other words, uh, one of the main uh, um, uh, problems that uh, the modern practice of sovereignty is facing is its inability to control its border, that is, to control the territorial uh, delineations of uh, its uh, special jurisdiction. Uh, there is a lot of, there, there is very interesting work um, around uh, this idea uh, that uh, 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 illegal border crossing uh, deprives uh, the sovereign of uh, its ultimate power of command uh, over a particular territory. The, uh, the fourth element is that uh, in most of uh, the uh, political uh, mobilizations of uh, irregular migrants, what uh, uh, we see is that uh, they evoke uh, universal human rights. So they evoke uh, a cosmopolitan uh, juridical uh, understanding uh, that allows them to articulate particular concrete demands on universalizable um, uh, values, uh, and, they do th and they do so even if uh, in uh, the legal uh, documents of human rights we have, no reference uh, is made about political rights. Uh, and this brings me to an element that I would like to develop toward uh, the end uh, in the closing, that what we are witnessing uh, uh, in this uh, performative evocation of human rights for political mobilization is elements of constituent power in the sense that they transform international law by enacting uh, extra-legal norms, norms that they are not included uh, in, uh, uh, in the international uh, regime of uh, human rights. Another dimension is uh, that uh, by acting politically within a, a, a bounded uh, a community, they deeply uh, subvert uh, homogeneous uh, conceptions uh, and uh, legal instantiations of citizenship. In other words, uh, they uh, challenge in practice uh, what uh, are the criteria of being a citizen. Now, uh, again, uh, to, 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 to a small parenthesis, uh, to go back to the question of citizenship. If one follows uh, the legal uh, understanding of citizenship, uh, that is, uh, one is a citizen if uh, one is recognized by a state uh, as a legal subject uh, of, uh, of rights, uh, one is facing uh, a paradox that can only end in the pure depolitization of citizenship. For example, why someone might be a citizen if one never participates in politics, even though one might have uh, the legal right to do so? So what we might call political passivity, privatization, apathy, depolitization. So we have the paradox of, of actors who act politically not to be considered citizens and those who are considered citizens not to act politically just because uh, the law uh, interpolates them uh, as citizens. If one uh, follows the legal understanding of citizenship independently of its uh, political participatory dimension, one devoids and deprives citizenship of its political context. Citizenship then loses all its political notion that means to participate politically in the life of a community, of a political community. Now, I'm going back to the last element of the uh, cosmopolitan dimension uh, of the mobilization of uh, irregular migrants is that uh, by their action, by their political mobilization, by their political contestation, they bring 
to build the outside in the inside. In other words, they open up a closed demos into a transnational, transregional, what I call cosmopolitan elements. Um, in most um, uh, legal systems, uh, not in all, but in most legal systems, uh, citizenship is deeply uh, combined and associated with nationality. And this, is the, this kind of nexus of uh, citizenship and nationality is broken uh, by the, the act of uh, the irregular uh, migrants. <coughs> so, I would like um, uh, to, to, conclu to uh, conclude with um, uh, some uh, uh, broader implications. Uh, again, uh, uh, with um, uh, an empirical factor. In Europe today, there are approximately 450 detention camps. Uh, we are speaking up for uh, uh, irregular migrants. We are speaking here about a new uh, European uh, archipelago, carceral archipelagos. Uh, all of these, uh, most of these detention camps uh, are uh, constructed uh, in the European borders. They are borderland uh, detention camps. Uh, so to keep uh, the migrants away from uh, the center of the political communities. In these uh, detention camps, uh, um, uh, the, the law uh, functions uh, in a very uh, irregular and obscure ways. But at the same time, in these uh, detention camps, uh, we have seen the most fierce mobilization, political mobilization of migrants, where they develop, they articulate a political discourse. So, in these relatively quasi-exceptional uh, uh, spaces, uh, we have uh, uh, the, the emergence uh, uh, of forms of democratic contestation. Now, the question is why do we consider, why want to consider the forms of contestation democratic? There are a few aspects that uh, uh, one can uh, uh, develop in relation to what democracy might mean today in Europe in relation to all these phenomena. They are democratic because they come from below. They are democratic because uh, they relate to forms of self-organization. They are also democratic because uh, they question one of the most fundamentally anti-democratic institutions of modernity, the nation-state and its repressive mechanisms. Let's not forget uh, that uh, in early modernity uh, there were two different political paradigms competing, the nation-state versus uh, the federation. Uh, if one reads, for example, uh, Johannes Althusius, uh, the first uh, theorist of uh, uh, the Federative Association, he directly argues against Baudin, that is the emblematic uh, uh, theorist of uh, state uh, sovereignty. What happened uh, in, uh, in modernity is that the uh, Federative project lost uh, and uh, the state institution won. And um, uh, today what uh, uh, we are witnessing um, with the globalizing forces is the nation-state trying to uh, salvage uh, its powers precisely by threatening new forms of associative politics. Uh, it is uh, my understanding that uh, the politicization of regular migrants can bring uh, the federative impulse back uh, into the European space. And by doing so, they might reverse uh, the trend uh, that we have today, where uh, the European Union uh, is becoming uh, a carceral society uh, for uh, uh, most of its uh, uh, foreign labor. So the understanding of the stateless citizen, that is uh, the politicized irregular migrant, might be the sole hope 
for Europe to recover its early modern radical democratic impulses. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for a, a fascinating and complex lecture, and I'm sure some of the themes uh, will be resonating with the master students in human rights who have been listening to some of these areas recently. Um, may I ask Dr. Aisha Chibukchu to give her response? Yes. Um, well, it's difficult to respond to a talk with which you agree. Uh, if I hadn't agreed with um, almost all of what Andrea said, I would be in a better position to respond, I think. Um, instead of elaborating on what he has said, the implications of which are clear, I hope, um, let, me, um, let me try to pose a question or two about the ambitiousness of the project as I understand it. Um, so what I heard Andreas tell us today is nothing short of a call to rethink what democracy means and should mean through the figure of what he called the irregular migrant. I think in the paradox with, about which I was going to ask him and he sort of uh, preventively explained it, I don't think it can be emphasized enough, the paradox at the heart of um, the presentation by Professor Kalibas. The paradox would be that you have citizens, legal citizens, who are not acting as citizens the way Professor Kalibas has defined it, as performative participants in a particular polity as agonistic political actors in a particular polity. So you have legal citizens who are not acting as citizens the way Professor Kalivas uh, wants us to revive a particular tradition in which they would be considered citizens. On the other hand, you have non-legal citizens according to Professor Kalibas' definition, who are actually, politically speaking, performing as citizens. So I think we should stop for a moment and reflect on that paradox, which calls for a radical rethinking of political community and what uh, democracy might mean. So actually, he's asking us to think about the criteria for political membership in a given polity and the criteria for its democratic constitution. So I think he's right to emphasize, to be fair to Hannah Arendt, she did in her later work emphasize the performative aspects of what it means to be a political actor. So it's a particular, I don't know if you would call it Republican, but it's a political understanding, it's a particular understanding of what it means to be the member of a political community. Now, if we're not going to stick with the legal definition of citizenship, you're asking us to reimagine politically what radical democratic citizenship should be. And at the very end of your talk, you're posing that as a challenge for the European Union. Uh, let me pose a question of clarification on the last part about uh, 
what you call the, federa the, the federative impulse, it wasn't absolutely clear to me why the challenge that you're articulating for us should be thought in terms of a federative, federative impulse. Because um, one can think of alternative ways to think about this. Uh, your uh, theoretical framework can actually be read in an anarchist way. As a, um, I, I would be tempted to do that because you're critiquing the nation state, because you're proposing a notion of political membership that is not tied to its legal representation or legal subsumption. So why not argue for the right to be stateless, for example? Why not argue for pure constitutive power which would be enacted by acts of citizenship without the framework of a state altogether. So um, the, what I thought uh, was weakest in the presentation, if I can be critical, was the cosmopolitan part, actually. Because um, you introduced the element of consciousness, the migrant's own consciousness, and I don't know if that is meant as a side note or not. So in your framework, because you pose it as cosmopolitan citizenship, I wonder what the role of the migrants' own self-understanding of what they are doing um, is. So is it the theorist sort of superimposing on the migrants themselves a notion of cosmopolitanism, because you did mention that borders, if they're understood politically by the migrants themselves, in that case, it would be a cosmopolitan uh, move, the mere act of boarding crossing. And why should we take Kant at face value um, to establish that cosmopolitanism? Um, so, and the third criteria you articulated for cosmopolitanism is depriving sovereign power by the mere act of illegal boarding crossing. Does depriving the state of its sovereign power necessarily mean that what we're facing is a cosmopolitan situation? Um, and another question is, why focus on irregular migrants? Because the theoretical framework you're articulating to me, it seems, could very well hold for regular migrants as well. So we have a whole, for example, in the United States, as we're both very familiar, a whole zone of migrants who are neither illegal nor citizens, legally speaking. So the green card holders. In the UK, I think it's called uh, permanent right to remain, or the ones that are legal, but not citizens. So how, do we, how can we incorporate that whole category? We're talking about millions of, say, green card holders or people with the legal right to remain and work in the UK within this framework. So why focus on the so-called undocumented? Um, I don't think it's theoretically necessary for the rethinking that you're asking us to do. Um, and lastly, what then is to be done with legal citizens who are not acting as citizens in the way you are urging them to? So this is a problem of, you know, 
this is a general problem with theorizing democracy and constituent power. So what do you do with the millions of people who are not uh, taking agonistic positions, who are not participating in public debate, um, who are not contesting um, or, you know, acting as contestatious actors the way you want. So what is their role, whether they are legal or illegal citizens or non-citizens? So I guess this is a call for you to reflect on the kind of notion of democracy that you want us uh, to embrace, which is not, once again, bound by the legal definition of one's standing which I think is very, very important, and that is a radical move to say that people who are acting as political participants in a given polity be counted in Rancière's terms, to be counted as a part of the demos. Thank you. Thank you I, so much. Well, I'd like Andres to respond, but what, one of the uh, things, if I may add to this mix, is while you were talking, the figure that kept coming up for me was Diogenes yes. as the figure that's absolutely the abject marginal figure of the Greek city-state, um, of poverty, abjection, destitution, railing against the city-state and um, Greek philosophy. But from that position of absolute marginality declares, I'm a citizen of the world. And that stands in as a figure for the refugee, the migrant, the undocumented migrant, and so forth. So I just thought I'd throw that in. Would you like to respond? Yes, I'm looking, I'm trying to find uh, uh, a reference from Diogenes yeah. um, that relates, but I will do it uh, yeah. later, that relates directly to the question of statelessness. Uh, he introduced the idea of the cosmopolitan as the one without the police, the one uh, losing the uh, So um, to go back to Aisha's um, um, excellent comments, uh, very quickly, uh, so we can have uh, uh, some discussion. The question, uh, the first has to do with um, uh, the conclusion, uh, how the federative uh, uh, impulse uh, relates um, uh, with the argument and what not um, uh, an anarchist one. First of all, let me um, clarify that... Um, um, uh, when anarchism um, uh, decided uh, to accept uh, some political forms um, in the 19th century, it accepted only one, uh, the federative principle. Remember Proudhon's uh, famous text about the federative principle that was also uh, adopted uh, uh, by Bakunin. In other words, um, uh, uh, given uh, the criticisms um, uh, against anarchism that are very well taken, uh, that uh, it lacks... Uh, a political theory or a theory of a political form, because every theory of political form includes elements of authority that they are against. The anarchists, some anarchists responded that the only form that is compatible with the normative content of their concept of freedom is a federation. Now, let me go back to Althusius. Althusius defines, gives a very interesting definition of politics. Um, the structure is almost the same with Schmidt, but the content is very different. He says uh, that uh, politics uh, is the art of associating and disassociating uh, for the benefit uh, of sufficient life. 
So I think that uh, what we are witnessing uh, uh, in, uh, in Europe, or, but also in other spaces, I don't want to, 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 to make the claim only in Europe, since uh, irregular migration is a, is a global phenomenon, but I'm more interested in relation to what happens uh, uh, in the European Union at this moment, is that we have the, the formation uh, of new uh, uh, illegal or extra-legal associations uh, by those that are not uh, uh, supposed uh, to have the right to associate. So I take this uh, to be the fundamental element uh, and, uh, of the federative principles. So we have new forms of association uh, being created uh, at the very ground of social and political life uh, against uh, existing laws, uh, both domestic and international, and also uh, uh, against uh, some uh, important, uh, let's say, majorities uh, that uh, exist. So uh, one might say that uh, this is not uh, a democratic approach because it seems that uh, the European European, uh, the European peoples have, uh, uh, are more prone uh, to exclude uh, the irregular migrants, although they use them as, uh, as cheap labor, than uh, uh, to include them. So the, what makes them democratic um, in that sense? I think it's uh, uh, the, the, the dimension of reciprocal uh, associative uh, relations, political relations uh, formed among uh, irregular migrants themselves to create new public spaces, but also in relation also uh, to um, uh, legal uh, uh, citizens. So the, the, the federative uh, uh, impulse uh, uh, for me is uh, the political form uh, of democracy uh, in modern times. Uh, it is also the political form of the constituent power. Uh, Althusius uh, was uh, the first think thinker, uh, modern theorist of federalism, as he was also uh, one of the first uh, uh, theories of the constituent power. Um, uh, he defined the power to constitute as the power to create associations outside, before, and prior to the, state, to the political form uh, itself. So I take the, 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 the actions, uh, uh, the, the mobilization of irregular action, or of irregular, irregular migrants, uh, to um, uh, uh, produce uh, new uh, political uh, associative relations. Uh, that uh, they need uh, to, to expand uh, for the sake of the democratic future uh, in, in the European Union. So uh, this is uh, how I, uh, I understand the federative principle to relate uh, to um, uh, constituent power and, and to democratic politics in relation to uh, mobilization, uh, acts of contestation uh, by regular migrants, by the stateless citizen. Now, uh, the, the second question you pose about the, 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 the element of consciousness or self-understanding, uh, this is a very uh, difficult issue, a real uh, uh, problem. Uh, on the one hand, there is uh, the level of facticity, um, border crossing, illegal border crossing, and there is uh, uh, the element of, uh, of uh, uh, consciousness or self-understanding uh, or um, uh, political, uh, explicit political agents uh, as a choice. I think uh, uh, any analysis of uh, uh, irregular migration in its political forms needs uh, to incorporate uh, both dimensions. The element of fact uh, and uh, the element of, uh, of self-awareness uh, or self-understanding. Um, on the one hand, uh, illegal border crossing by itself uh, is uh, a challenge uh, to, to state sovereignty. Uh, but uh, uh, if it is not politicized, and, and here what I have in mind is uh, Etienne's Balibar work on the democratization of, of borders, uh, by itself it will not be enough. It needs to be politicized. 
uh, what it means to be politicized, uh, that um, uh, irregular migrants uh, might at some point uh, decide to cross borders uh, as forms of political, explicit political contestations. On the one hand, uh, today we know that this is happening. Borders are political for uh, the one reason among others is that they are the most militarized uh, spaces um, in the European continent in this moment, the most militarized. Um, uh, and this is something that was predicted by Abed de Saint-Pierre already in the 18th century when he spoke about um, a, a united Europe and he said all the armies will move along the borders. So within Europe there will be no armies, but around the borders there will be, all the armies will be there. Uh, so on the one, on, uh, by this it's already uh, obvious that uh, borders, uh, by being over-militarized, over-securitized, are uh, very uh, uh, important uh, spaces of political power. Uh, and uh, the idea of... Um, Etienne Balibar is precisely to politicize them on the other side, that is not to enter them, uh, to break, uh, to transgress them uh, as individual uh, acts, uh, but as uh, collective uh, political acts uh, whereby migrants, uh, irregular migrants can um, uh, negotiate uh, with uh, state authorities uh, regarding the, the, their entries. They, can, they could stage uh, political events. And this also already has happened uh, in many cases. The one I'm most familiar are uh, the, the borders in, uh, in Greece, uh, in, northern, uh, in um, uh, northern Greece, uh, the borders with Turkey, where uh, migrants have staged uh, political uh, activities there, uh, of course, uh, in association and uh, alliance uh, with some uh, Greek uh, political movements. So, uh, yes, uh, uh, there is the problem of, uh, of self-understanding, self-awareness, uh, but uh, uh, an understanding of cosmopolitanism needs uh, to, to bring together the, the fact of uh, border crossing plus uh, the conscious uh, self-chosen uh, um, uh, um, self, self, uh, uh, politization of this act itself. Now, um, why not uh, legal migrants? Uh, legal migrants in, in, in most, um, uh, at least, uh, uh, Western liberal uh, constitutional states, uh, already they enjoy some political rights. For example, they can vote uh, in municipal elections. Uh, they can organize um, uh, informal associations. Uh, so they have uh, uh, political rights that are uh, incomplete. This is the idea of uh, uh, that citizenship is a gradated notion, it has internal gradations. What is important about irregular migrants is that they politicize space of illegality. Uh, for me, this is uh, an important uh, lesson or uh, a promising uh, uh, lesson from uh, um, the, the stateless uh, citizen, is that they are able uh, to turn uh, spaces uh, of, um, uh, let's call them lawlessness, states uh, of exception, uh, into political ones. Um, it's a form of self-valorization. It's a form of self-organization. So um, uh, the importance of these forms of activities is that they contest the primacy of the law that tends to monopolize, to occupy uh, all uh, understandings and acts uh, of, uh, of politics. Uh, the, in a sense, um, uh, I think that legal positivism in the end has won. 
in that uh, we tend to understand politics only in relation uh, to legally specified uh, activities, uh, relationships, uh, or spaces. What um, uh, irregular migrants uh, who become political uh, actors uh, show is that uh, there are forms of politics uh, that require transgression from the instituted law from the established law. And by doing though, this is not any kind of fascination with illegality, is uh, more an interest about uh, the extra-legal manifestations of constituent uh, politics, in the sense that uh, new uh, future forms uh, of legal norms are generated uh, outside the law itself. Uh, let's not forget uh, that uh, laws are forms of mediations. They are very important. There would be probably no stable politics without uh, a legal system. But uh, on the other hand, uh, if politics is reduced to legal, procedural and juridical norms, then uh, uh, many aspects uh, of politics uh, are repressed and uh, forgotten and neglected. So uh, the, the problem, the, the question of uh, uh, the politization of irregular migrants uh, allow us uh, to see the intersection, the important intersection between law and politics. Uh, because as I said, the, the category of the stateless is a juridical category itself. So it's an irregular, it's a legal category that uh, operates in a sense um, in a semi-extra-legal uh, space. So I'm interested uh, in these forms of, uh, uh, of uh, activities precisely because uh, they lead to the politicization uh, of, of, uh, of the exception. The exception becomes political, but not uh, in, in a Gaben sense, uh, in the sense of uh, um, uh, a, a purely uh, biopolitical uh, domination. They become also um, uh, sp uh, spaces, political space for democratic politics, for self-association outside uh, legal mediations uh, and, uh, and procedural uh, representations. Now, uh, the last question is um, um, what is to be done with legal citizens? And this is uh, uh, that, um, uh, the, another promising aspect uh, of uh, um, the, the stateless citizen um, can uh, uh, um, uh, illuminate. Uh, we need to reform citizenship. Uh, citizenship has to be reformed um, uh, in uh, the Western liberal constitutional state because what we have is not uh, citizenship. When we speak about uh, the crisis of citizenship today, in fact, we are speaking about the crisis of democracy. Uh, contemporary democracy is facing uh, an enormous crisis. Uh, it is a, a, a democracy without uh, public spaces, without public presence. What kind of citizen one is uh, when one is not publicly present? Uh, this is an oxymoron. This is a paradox. Uh, it doesn't make sense uh, from uh, not only the conceptual etymology of, of citizenship, that meant to be publicly present uh, in the life of the city, uh, but it leads uh, to uh, anti-democratic uh, uh, outcomes. It seems uh, that uh, in, uh, in a constant term, uh, the freedom of the, of the moderns has completely eradicated the freedom of the ancients. That was not constant approach. You want to reconcile them, but it seems that he's eradicated them. And uh, by this eradication, the democratic uh, uh, aspect of the liberal democratic nexus uh, is unraveling. Uh, so um, uh, what we call liberal democracies might, might be at the end uh, of its historical uh, process. Uh, if we don't have citizens active, not constantly, permanently, but from time to time, especially in critical moments, 
uh, active and present uh, in the public space, uh, I don't uh, see what kind of democracy we have. So uh, the, 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 the expectation or the hope is that uh, irregular uh, uh, politi the, the politization of irregular migrants may reinvigorate uh, both politically and legally uh, the um, uh, concepts and the norms of citizenship uh, uh, we are living with uh, uh, in um, uh, liberal democracies. That uh, without citizens you don't have a democracy. What kind of democracy can you have if there are no citizens? And citizens means precisely to take sides uh, in public forms of uh, contestations uh, in confrontational acts. So um, uh, I think that is the uh, ultimate promise of uh, the politicization of irregular migrants. So the stateless citizen, uh, as I understand it today, at least in the European continent, but also uh, in North America, uh, has to do with the, the future of democracy as such um, today. Okay, thank you, Andreas, and thank you uh, to both our presenters. Um, we have some time for questions, and um, I would like to take questions in in groups of three. Uh, also, you'll see our wonderful LSE stewards who are around with their microphones. So could you please wait uh, until the microphone comes to you so that everyone in the audience can hear the, your question clearly? When you ask a question, could you also give your name and your institutional affiliation? Who would like to go first? And it would be good to get as many questions in as possible. Okay, there's a question at the back there. Is there anybody else who's waiting? Okay, this. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Hussein Arslan. I'm a student at LSC, studying Master of Science, Human Rights. Um, thanks for the event. Um, my question is to comes to Professor Andreas Kalibas. Um, you mentioned of uh, il, uh, you mentioned that illegal entrance and overstays in many European countries, maybe Western countries have human rights, but not political rights. Um, I'm just wondering whether you can consider the Geneva Convention in that case, for example, the contracting parties to Geneva Convention um, obviously give right to refugees and asylum seekers to settle by granting them refugee status and humanitarian protection, by giving them, for example, refugee status, maybe some kind of uh, discretionary leave to remain on the basis of their political opinion, particular members of, of particular social group, race, nationality, um, and also uh, the European Directive on Refugees grants asylum seekers some sort of leave for them to settle, uh, settle for a reasonable time. For example, refugee status is for five years. The, for example, United Kingdom grants refugees five years limited leave to remain and also uh, give them a chance to settle and grants them indefinite leave to remain and then also give them another chance to settle as a British citizen. Um, don't you think that that's reasonable for European countries and United Kingdom authorities uh, to grant them some sort of leave for them to settle first, then become a citizen? citizen? Okay, thank you for your thank question. You. And there's a question just to the back there. Um, yeah, hi. So I'd like to focus on irregular migrants whose political mobilization has received quite a lot of attention in the United States. That is the dream activist. Um, so the fear is that, yes, the state has responded to their various 
uh, acts of political mobilization. Most recently we saw in June um, Obama's uh, sort of passing of the DREAM Act. Um, uh, in doing so, however, uh, I fear that a priority is placed on one sector of um, the broader category of irregular migrants in the United States, and that is the children of um, adults who crossed borders generations ago. Um, so I'd like to draw a parallel to what we see going on, for instance, um, with the legalization of gay marriage in the United States, which um, also has that same effect of excluding a certain sector within that broader category, that is, people who oppose the institution of marriage in general. And um, the implications of that, of course, is de-radicalizing um, the political mobilization of queer politics in general. So to come back to the question of regular or irregular migrants, um, do you think that the DREAM activists in having uh, such an explicit focus on children who, right, didn't have a lot of agency when they were crossing the border, you know, their parents were essentially moving them along. Um, okay, I'm, I'm aware that we've got very okay. little time, sure, so sure. Uh, if you could right keep now. your questions brief, and Sorry. we have a question just uh, over there. Hello, my name is Markus Papek from the University of Darmstadt. Um, my question is the following. Usually categories like cosmopolitan and global citizenship are invoked with a normative and prescriptive intent. So these are counterfactual categories which are somehow pointing at desirable institutional reforms or something like that. My question is, your category of the stateless citizen, does it carry any normative content or is it a purely descriptive category that tries to explain, interpret, um, describe what's going on with um, irregular migration? Okay, can I just take one more question? Anybody from the front? Thank you. Um, I'm Julia Truhl, just here for myself. Um, being living in London for 12 years, still have the citizenship of my home country, can't vote in either, um, have to fulfill all the duties of a citizen here, true reservist, tax, not allowed to vote, which takes rights away, I find is lacking. I loved your idea of this anarchy point of can we choose to be stateless? Why do I have to have a citizenship? Why can't I just care about the whole planet? Why can't I just say I care about the whole planet? I, I want to live in a special city but maybe not in a state or a country. Okay, that's a very uh, good and interesting bunch of questions. Andres? Thank you so much. Complicated, difficult but important ones. Uh, let's start with the, the first uh, about um, uh, uh, refugees and uh, asylum seekers, whether um, uh, this, um, um, the uh, international law um, uh, allows um, or permits um, to envision um, uh, some uh, forms of, uh, of political rights. 
What is important um, is that um, I, I didn't, I haven't thought about this, but um, let me say what I, I think is important is that uh, uh, those categories uh, include uh, already a political dimension. Uh, it's a form of political persecution uh, on some grounds that the law, international law, has uh, uh, decided. And because of these political reasons, uh, the, those who are deemed to be refugees um, and, uh, and uh, to qualify for, for asylum uh, have a more um, a privileged uh, standing uh, in relation to what we might understand as uh, traffic persons or uh, economic, illegal economic uh, uh, migrants. So from that point of view, you might say that uh, international law uh, implicitly or indirectly recognizes the political dimension of the refugee as a victim of one sort or another. Therefore, the solution might open up the possibility of uh, a political recognition uh, in the form of, uh, of political rights. Um, but I don't think that uh, uh, there is uh, such an automatic um, uh, relationship. Um, I take uh, um, the granting of asylum to open up uh, a door towards um, political rights, but uh, uh, it is not uh, predetermined. And uh, one here will need uh, to, to engage with uh, empirical facts, uh, to see how many in a particular space have applied, have, have been granted um, um, asylum, and how many of those uh, uh, later on uh, became uh, also uh, citizens, were granted citizenship. Um, and this I don't have the information. But uh, definitely because uh, it's a, the refugee is a political or semi-political category, uh, it might uh, generate uh, a more um, 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 inviting uh, political recognition, although uh, it is not uh, uh, teleologically determined. So um, it's not by chance uh, that uh, most uh, uh, irregular migrants uh, uh, try to apply for um, the status of uh, refugee status, uh, precisely for this reason. Um, what I'm interested in is not, uh, uh, again, uh, to turn the, the, the irregular migrant into a political victim in the form of a refugee. Uh, I'm interested in the irregular migrant as the politicization of, of labor uh, across borders uh, in relation to mobility. Uh, but these are uh, important strategies for the actors involved. Uh, although I, I don't see... Uh, that uh, uh, the law, the international law here uh, is more welcoming uh, or more promising from the point of view of uh, political subjectivation. Political subjectivation, as I said before, uh, becomes important uh, when um, uh, it is able uh, to start from uh, illegality and to press for legal reforms, what uh, one might call a kind of juris generative principle to create law, uh, 
uh, where the law there isn't. Uh, this is an important aspect of uh, democratic politics. Uh, the empowerment and the self-subjectivation of um, irregular migrants uh, um, creates, uh, uh, in relation, of course, to power relations, creates the conditions for the, ge for the, creation, for the generation uh, um, uh, of new law. And this brings me to the second question, um, whether, um, let's say, the DREAM Act um, uh, might not have de-radicalizing uh, uh, effects. I do think there are some de-radicalizing de de effects, uh, but um, things are uh, more dialectical. Um, it's not uh, by chance that after the um, uh, massive demonstrations of 2006, uh, uh, many things uh, uh, changed uh, legally in the United States regarding. But uh, the legal aspect should be understood also in relation to the democratic one, uh, um, especially uh, as a kind of uh, a forceful uh, act uh, to be included. What is more important before the Dream Act is that um, when all these uh, demonstrations took place in the United States, um, something uh, uh, new happened uh, because they were uh, illegal demonstrations. <coughs> they had to take uh, to get permits from local authorities, and they got permits. By getting a permit uh, for uh, irregular migrants to demonstrate publicly, uh, it means that uh, they got an element of political recognition that later on uh, took the form, uh, the more legal, uh, juridical uh, uh, form of the, of the Dream Act. So uh, here, of course, the, the, there is a dilemma. Uh, how, how far one uh, is willing to uh, fight uh, through uh, illegality uh, or to try to transform this illegality into new uh, legal uh, um, uh, norms? And the Dream Act, uh, I think, responds uh, and um, uh, uh, plays out this kind of uh, dilemma. Uh, that uh, it is uh, a response of, the, of, of a state uh, to illegal uh, political uh, mobilizations uh, and tries to address them. Um, I think um, it's a beginning, uh, uh, but uh, it, it is not um, uh, exactly the, the way that I perceive uh, the, the future transformation uh, of citizenship um, in liberal constitutional uh, states. Uh, what uh, I think uh, might happen, a possibility, it might happen, is that um, uh, these forms of legal reforms uh, will also affect uh, existing uh, um, uh, understandings, uh, legal understandings of citizenship as such. Rather than to understand someone to enter into an existing legal norm, uh, what I perceive is that by entering, by contesting and entering, the legal norm changes itself. Uh, it's not only a, 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 a quantitative uh, a change uh, that uh, more are included within the same norm uh, or the space that the norm creates, but uh, that uh, the norm itself changes. The content changes, not only uh, its scope. So I think with the Dream Act, um, uh, the, the norm of citizenship has not changed yet. Uh, if these struggles and these mobilizations and these forms of politization continue, uh, I do uh, anticipate that at some point uh, what we understand as citizenship uh, will change both politically and, and legally. And uh, mainly it will mean that uh, citizenship is also a performance, is an enactment, is not only uh, a, 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 an abstract uh, legal norm uh, that one has uh, or one does not have. That citizenship is something that uh, needs to be um, enacted uh, because otherwise uh, it might dissipate. 
So without enactment, practical, concrete, tangible enactment, that is citizens in public spaces, uh, all legal reforms uh, will become uh, ossified, uh, new iron cages, uh, and uh, they will uh, suffocate the, the limited, minimal uh, democracy we have today. So uh, I see the Dream Act, uh, I want to see the Dream Act uh, as the very beginning uh, uh, of uh, this contestation between the legal and the legal in order to transform the legal into something more democratic. Because democracy cannot always be confined within norms. Democracy can overflow norms in order to generate new ones and then the same um, uh, process um, in the long term. The third term, uh, again, cosmopolitanism. I think cosmopolitanism is both normative and prescriptive and descriptive. Uh, what I'm interested uh, definitely is in uh, the descriptive sense, but uh, the descriptive uh, sense in, in the normative uh, tradition. Uh, and and um, what I, 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 I want to, to see here is the, the, the cosmopolitanism from below. Uh, emerging through associative, uh, semi-legal, semi-legal activities. Um, and why this um, uh, is um, uh, democratic? Uh, again, because uh, it opens up um, uh, new possibilities, new spaces uh, for participation and uh, uh, intervention, especially uh, of those that um, uh, produce labor but are excluded from uh, the political forms uh, of uh, regulating labor. So um, uh, cosmopolitanism, yes, normatively, prescriptively, but uh, always in relation uh, to, uh, to the democratic um, uh, perspective, that is the perspective. Democracy is always the, the perspective from below. There is no demo. The state is the perspective from above. Democracy is the perspective that uh, emerges from the grassroots. Now, why not to remain stateless? In the world we live uh, that is mo monopolized by, by nation states, um, statelessness uh, uh, is, uh, can be political and have all these aspects, but can be also um, uh, disempowering in many other uh, dimensions. I don't want to romanticize statelessness. I understand statelessness as politically and democratically promising, uh, but at the same time uh, as a situation uh, uh, that cannot be um, reproduced for too long without really affecting the good of, uh, of the individuals involved. So there is no romanticization of statelessness. And again, this brings me to, the other, uh, to another point. We speak about the crisis of the nation state. This is the dominant discourse in the last 20, 30 years. It's like a, a mystical mantra that uh, we reproduce. But if we look at numbers, the states are constantly increasing. Now, how many states we have? 189? Uh, so uh, there is here a dialectical paradox in our global modernity that uh, we speak about the crisis of state sovereignty and at the same time we see state sovereignty uh, multiplying the continuously themselves. So in this uh, world that's monopolized by, by, by states, uh, to remain uh, stateless uh, is uh, something extremely difficult and uh, um, can be injurious. It's not uh, um, a purely a pure victimization. On the contrary, this is what I have to argue. But I don't want to say that statelessness is uh, uh, the, the future... Uh, Uh, of, of democracy to remain in a stateless position, but to use that subject position in order to um, uh, allow for democratic um, uh, radical transformations. Okay, thank you. Um, I was hoping to take more questions, but I think we've run out of time for questions, and I hope that uh, Professor Kalibas will be available in the reception uh, to answer your questions in person. Before we leave, can I remind you about an important event that the Centre has, uh, has organised? And this is the international, uh, UN International Human Rights Day event, putting rights back together again on Thursday, 6th of December 
Uh, again, it's at 6.30 with Salil Shetty, who's the Secretary General of Amnesty International. And if you want to know more about the Centre's events, uh, please do sign up to receive our email alerts or follow us on Twitter with the uh, tag LSE Human Rights. Can I thank Andrea, Andreas Kalivas and Aisha Chubukchu again for an extremely interesting and fascinating discussion. Thank you. Okay. And there's a reception just outside uh, here, so please do join us for a drink. But before we leave, can I also thank Zoe Gillard from the Centre for the Study of Human Rights our wonderful LSE stewards, and also yourselves for your thoughtful and challenging questions. Thank you very much.